Welcome to the Vegetable Beat. This is Ben Phillips from MSU. I'm here with part two of our episodes on overwintering pests. It's just two parts, so this is the last one. These two will be written up in a vegetable grower's news column called Great Lakes or Midwest Veg Connections. I forget which. I have to apologize right off the top here. I gave some bad advice to my guest about using a microphone that hangs from your ear. And so it kind of dangles around and it creates some interference throughout the interview in a way that uh, was impossible for me to edit out. So there's a little bit of interference, but the content is still good. You know what? Actually, the content is great. So enjoy. And I'm here with Lena Rodriguez-Salamanca, plant pathologist and diagnostician at Iowa State University. She's here to discuss what some of our disease pests do in the wintertime and what to expect given certain conditions and how to manage before and after winter uh, for some of these different um, limiting uh, things on vegetable production. But welcome, Lena. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. So this is a two-part episode, as I said before. I recorded an interview with Sophia Zendre from MSU earlier this week, and uh, she talked about insects. And we talked, you know, we kind of set this episode up very lightly, I'd say, by getting into viruses a little bit. But we're going to be talking more about fungi and bacteria, I think, today uh, with you, Lena, and maybe we can talk about viruses too. But um, this episode is going to be also summarized as a as an article in the Vegetable Growers News Magazine in a column called uh, Veg Connections, Great Lakes Veg Connections, I think we're calling it. It'll come out later this winter. So uh, let's get into it. Lena, we've got two big groups of organisms that are diseases of uh, our vegetables and many other things. Bacteria and fungi are the two I'm thinking of. And within that, there's some that are more persistent or annoying, sticklers, I might call them, and others that are a little more, uh, you know, here and here and there, hit or miss, sticklers, because it rhymes with sticklers, let's say. Um, some of them are in the soil, some of them are not, and they're windblown, but how do they overwinter? Is there like big categories or groups of ways these things overwinter? What kind of patterns can you tell me about? Yeah, we have a lot of uh, um, fungi. Um, some of them are very good at um, overwintering in the soil, um, also known as soil-borne pathogens. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them uh, would make very specific structures um, that allow them to um, stick around for the winter, withstand uh, low temperatures, um, and remain dormant um, for a long period of time. And then uh, you may think of uh, specific structures like, for example, sclerotia, uh, depending on the pathogen. You may have sclerotia that are big uh, and you can hold in your hand and and they could be maybe like a penny, the size of a penny or maybe half uh, of that. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so it's the same, the same fungal body, those strands, those hyphae and mycelia, that as the temperatures start to uh, change and become colder and colder, then this mycelia makes little tufts um, and become uh, dark or melanized um, oh. and harden. That's what the sclerotia so is? It's Yeah. Oh, my That's gosh. The- I didn't. I didn't know that. Okay. I know some growers. So one disease that many growers would probably know about is white mold. 
that's the common name and it makes those sclerotia and i know a lot of growers um and that must be one that makes a big a big sclerotia because if i'm on the phone with a grower sometimes we just we just talk about them as rat turds because they look yes. a little bit like rodent poop yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, you can see them uh, developing in the tissue. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes because they're dark, you may miss them. They may fall from the tissue, go in the soil, mm -hmm. and they just blend in. And that's, that's problematic. Uh, those sclerotia can stay in the soil for many years. Um, and there are some other fungal pathogens, like, for example, botrytis. Okay. Uh, some species of botrytis, um, botrytis causes gray mold on a variety uh -huh. of vegetable crops. Mm -hmm. um, and when it's time to overwinter, gray mold will make sclerotia that are smaller. We'll call them microsclerotia. I see. So this one's, they will not be like rat turds. They will be smaller <laughs> than that by like a tenth of it. Okay. And then they will remain associated with any plant debris. Um, and they will overwinter. They're very good at overwintering. And comes the spring, temperatures and humidity start to um, change and become conducive uh, for development. And this too, the, the big sclerotia from sclerotinia from white mold uh, will germinate into a tiny cup mushroom. Mm -hmm. uh, while the sclerotia from botrytis can just simply start producing spores from there, germinate, okay into mycelia hyphae again and and become um become uh reproductively active again making a lot of the spores and those spores just like the the little cup fungi from sclerotinia from white mold mm -hmm. those spores will be picked up by the wind and then um get into different places okay okay interesting so so sclerotia is one way that some of these fungi get through the winter, and it's essentially like a, a, a concentrated set of their roots or mycelia just like crammed together. And okay, that's one way. Um, are there other ways? Yeah, some other uh, pathogens, um, they may not make very specialized uh, structures. Um, they may just remain associated with plant debris. Um, mm. And so sometimes, like if we think about uh, oh, my seeds or water molds. Mm -hmm. um, they're not technically fungi. They, they belong to a different kingdom. Oh, and, that's and, right. Yeah, I forgot. I, I said there's two groups. So there's really a third really important one. Yeah, that's right. And, and we tend to put them all together. My theory is that we talk about fungi for the most part because our fungicides or pesticides are called fungicides, right? Mm -hmm. We yeah. don't talk about omaticides or or algicides or things like that or just, yeah. just call them fungicides no but one knows how to is, how, no one knows how to say oh oh my seeds no one yes <laughs> it's always a question and phytophthora too which is one of the oh my seeds it's a it's a real tongue twister yes it is uh and try and write that down it's even worse <laughs> <laughs> i uh this year my phone finally started to autocorrect in my text messaging app for phytophthora i must write it enough that it's learned oh, it. <laughs> <laughs> well let's hope not Those, we don't want a lot of phytophthora out there no, but, no. Um, <laughs> but yeah so phytophthora and, and all my seeds in general they they um they have a very different lifestyle some of them could be airborne. Some of them can be waterborne. But mm -hmm. the truth is uh, some of them 
um, are what we call self-fertile, meaning that they can make resting spores just on their own. They don't need a, a partner or a mate. Okay. Um, or mating type is, is what we call it. But when they do, um, you need those two different mating types present in a field and then have to get in, in contact with each other. And from there, they will make oospores. That is the resting spore for all mycetes or water molds. Okay. So some are self-fertile and they'll make the oospores um, no problem all by themselves. So both Correct. of them end up with that, but some of them need a mating type. Right. Okay. Okay. Yes. So if you have one of this uh, phytophthoras that don't, they, they're self-fertile, what would happen is the mycelia will then um, create both uh, specialized structures, the female and the male, and they will form the oospores. And those oospores will remain embedded like in the tissue that will become debris at the end of the season. And that oospores will stay with the debris. If the debris decomposes, then the oospore could potentially um, be free living in the soil. Okay. When you say um, they're associated with plant debris, does that mean it's required um, for them to live? I guess uh, one word that I heard earlier this week was uh, obligate or facultative, meaning obligate meaning something needs an, uh, needs something to live. Um, so some diseases or some insects, they uh, won't survive without it. And others can, they can go, they can, you know, exist in some kind of dormant state without a host. So when you say they're associated with debris, does that mean they're, they require it or not? That's a really good question. Okay. And, and for the most part, those um, that live in debris uh, don't necessarily need uh, to be associated with it. Um, it's kind of like where it is at the time where the plant, you know, kind of dies at the end of the season. That's correct. Yes. Okay. They're not it like a happened. bug that can just get up and walk away. It's just like it's in the plant already. Okay. That's right. I understand. That's right. Yep. So it's the, this structure form in the tissue, then eventually the, the temperatures will kill that tissue, but the oospore will remain uh, dormant and alive until the next season. Okay. Yeah, but to that point, uh, and it's a very good point, those obligate um, parasites like downy mildews that also belong, they're all mycetes, um, they are, for the most part, they do need a living host to overwinter. Okay. Okay. And that's why a lot of them will not stick around in this areas in the Midwest, um, simply because it, they, they may not have... Um, a reservoir of living plants to stick around, um, or if they need, if they're not self-fertile, they may not have both types available to go through the whole oospore production. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's a little different with those okay. that are obligate. Yeah. Okay. So that, that was one of the diseases that I would call like a, one of the fickle ones where it's some, it's the severity can change with different seasons and um and i think it's because of what you mentioned they can't make it over the winter up here and they have to migrate or blow up every year similar to some of the insects that sophia and i talked about earlier this week okay all right yeah. um then before we move on to like bacteria or something like that there's another fungi i'm interested in hearing what you have to say about it um alternaria it's like the 
it's a disease where it's like every plant has their own version of it. It's like an every plant disease, but each one is different. You know, there's an alternaria for tomatoes. There's an alternaria for uh, some vine crops, alternaria for onions. Do they all overwinter the same way? Are they similar in that way too? And, and how is it that they, they get by? Yeah, so alternaria, um, it's one of those that doesn't necessarily will make a um, resting spore. Okay. Um, some, depending on the species, do um, have the potential to uh, find their mate uh, for mainly to increase the diversity and the population, but not necessarily to make long lasting overwintering fungal bodies. Okay. Some of them can, um, and we call those their bottled shape, um, and uh, we call those spignidia. But it, oh, but, the term. but the truth is that a lot of the alternaria are very good at uh, just overwintering in debris, um, but also remain associated with weeds, uh, perennial weeds that, oh. um, well, annual and perennial weeds. Um, that just become the reservoir of, of this type of pathogen. Okay, so they can essentially host switch and mm -hmm. overwinter in, a, in, another, in another plant that might actually slow down uh, their metabolism through the winter and then the, the pathogen can exist there for a while through the winter. Yeah, but to your point, um, and it was a very important point, is they, they host switch within the same family. That is very important. Um, so it has to be um, a mustard or a brassica um, weed for those alternaria that will go into cold crops, uh, cabbage, kale, um, mm -hmm. broccoli, Brussels sprouts, all those. Um, yeah, that's a but, rare that that one. The alternaria of cold crops has become such a problem. And uh, what you mentioned is is I think a very important point. Because mustards are winter annuals, so all the, the kind of natural weed population of mustards germinate in late summer going into the fall, which is when our later coal crops are finishing. And what you have is at field edges and stuff like that are basically a waiting reservoir for them to retreat to for the winter. And then because coal crops are a cool season crop and short too, they're often like the first crops in the spring that growers will plant. And so they have this, this, this like bridge through the winter for it. Oh man, that's, exactly. that's rough. Okay. All right. Yeah. That bridge is exactly what I was thinking. And, and sometimes depending um, if you have um, some um, hoop houses or, or tunnels where you may start or continue cropping through the winter, uh, then those could also act as bridges. Yes. Okay. Now, how about bacteria? We've got a few, um, a few bacterial groups that are involved in vegetables. I think they more or less stay within these two genera that I hear most common, Pseudomonas, Xanthomonas. There's also the tomato one, what, Clavibacter, the, the canker disease of tomato. But um, how, do they, how do they get through? Well, some of them are good at staying with beverage again. Mm -hmm. What is unfortunate is some of them are very good at staying with the seed. Um, and so oh. that could be, you know, a way that um, some of this bacteria get to the, the production systems, either in the greenhouse when the seedlings are being produced, um, 
or you know if, if only one seed is infected then from there it could really you know and, and you think of a of a vegetable a tray of seedlings and they're all tied in there packed up so if if you happen to have the, let's say bacteria that stayed in the weeds in the greenhouse or that stay on the surfaces um, of um, the bench or sometimes you'll have some growers that don't have raised benches mm-hmm. um, but the bacteria could stay in a lot of surfaces mm-hmm. um, and not necessarily you know if, if those surfaces are not clean then this bacteria can stay there um, so it's it's um they're not necessarily making resting spores. Uh, they're just very good at staying dormant and taking opportunities without, you know, mm-hmm. um, making this too um, anthropomorphic, but like they're out there to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if there is some debris, if there's some weeds, they will stay that way. Um, and sometimes um, they can be transmitted by vectors. Um, and stay on the insects, not necessarily circulated in the system of the of the vector per se, but maybe just uh, on surfaces of the vector. Mm-hmm. Um, and if those um, insects get to overwinter, um, then the bacteria will overwinter too with the with the okay. vector. Okay, I think a good example of that is cucumber beetle. They carry the bacterial wilt uh, disease. In, in their bodies, and I'm not I'm not sure if the beetle can feel it. Like if you could interview a cucumber beetle, one that has bacterial wilt in its gut and one that doesn't, I'm not sure if they if the the one with the disease would tell you. Like yeah, I don't feel that great. I don't know if they could say, but yeah, they do carry it, um, and they'll overwinter with it, just like you said. Um, I had one other question about bacteria. Um, I had to, I teach a lot of food safety trainings now uh, for produce growers and. One of the one of the pieces of information that that's part of this big, huge committee built like federal slide set, it compares some of the main pathogen types of human concern: viruses, fungi, uh, and bacteria. And the one thing that they point to in these slides for the food safety thing is that bacteria are are better known to um, reproduce without a host. So like on surfaces instead of in a plant or in your gut, they can, outside of those places where they really want to be, they can still reproduce. Is that the case with some of the plant pathogenic bacteria as well? Hmm, that's a really good question. I think, I was just thinking too, they, a lot of these pathogens are very good. They're free living. You can hmm. find them in water and soil uh, and other surfaces. Um, so I think definitely... Um, you will have a lot of them and it, it really would depend on the particular bacteria that we may be thinking, thinking about. Okay. Uh, but a lot of them will be very good at just being present in water and soil and surfaces. Um, but having enough energy to reproduce, um, it would really depend on the particular potentially genus and species. Um, but they're so prolific, the way that bacteria reproduces they double numbers very quickly mm-hmm. um, that I, I would think that a lot of these pathogens um, just can be dormant when the conditions are not right. And then if there's enough humidity and some sort of nutrients, then they can just, you know, build the population. It's below um, really fast. Yeah. 
Yeah. They're all they, all they have to do is just split, right? They just split. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And I can think of an example on, on vegetables, but at least in fruit, um, there's a very famous bacteria um, that causes fire blight, uh, Erwinia mm. armillivora, that it actually will need to build a certain number of bacteria, a certain population, so that it then switches from epiphytic, meaning being on the surface of the plant, to actually swapping to be parasitic or pathogenic uh, and start causing symptoms and and problems. Oh, that's interesting. I know there's a lot of disease models for that pathogen, and that might be why then, to try to predict when it makes that flip so you can be ahead of it. Yeah, a lot of these models really take the knowledge from what we know from the bacteria, how it grows, how it lives, uh, how it overwinters, and then how it thrives. What does it need? Uh, What variety um, of plants are we talking about? The humidity, uh, temperature, rainfall, that potential for splashing bacteria uh, just with raindrops or irrigation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you put all that together and, and that model really is just, if you think about it, it's a set of parameters. Um, it's a model that was developed um, by, by a researcher. Um, and then you kind of plug in different variables that um, will give you uh, an assessment of the risk. Uh, of course, all these models need to be really uh, vetted and validated um, so that we make sure that the prediction is correct. But it's most useful when you can look at that risk um, make sure that it's correct, um, pre- correctly predicting the, the actual infection or risk of damage so that you can time your treatments before, you know, before you get to the most critical point mm-hmm. uh, and that you can uh, have the best use of your pesticide. Um, right. Especially with bacteria, sometimes we need to use antibiotics um, and, you know, those uh, we have to use very carefully. Yeah, you don't want those to get resist resistance, which we see sometimes, and it's not not great. Um, nope. So you'd mentioned some some parameters, right? Um, that these models use, and I don't really want to talk a whole lot about models, but I am interested in the parameters uh, that affect the survivability of some of these pathogens. And in the summertime, that's where the models are really kicking into gear, right? Trying to figure out how, how long has the leaf been wet and has it overcast and how many days of rain, that kind of thing, feed into these models. And that's some good real-time data for management in the season. In the wintertime, though, when these pathogens are, are dormant um, or existing at very low levels on weeds in the field or whatever, what what kind of factors should we be thinking of then? Like what what kind of winter time effects can we expect to have on the on these pathogens well maybe maybe i'll phrase it differently every spring going into early summer there's there's a fair amount of talk about what the what the last winter was like and what that might mean for pests coming forward and i'm an entomologist and that's where my bias is i'm weak on diseases but so I know something about insects that can overwinter a little bit better in a mild winter, for example. Cucumber beetles can sometimes be worse, flea beetles, that kind of thing. How about on the disease side? What kind of winter, what, what does a mild winter mean for diseases uh, or, or a really harsh one or one with lots of snow cover? A lot of questions, Lena. Sorry. I know. That, that, that's a loaded question. Um, 
<laughs> so I think a lot of the temperatures and, you know, lack of, um, you know, the temperatures are low um, and the moisture is frozen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of those free, free living bacterium are not going to have as much success. They were just going to stay as dormant um, simply because there's nothing out there for them. I do think, though, those bacteria that may be associated with those insects, um, you know, the insects are going to be dictating how much of this population survived. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the beauty of, you know, a bacteria being associated with a vector uh, that provides with some shelter mm-hmm. um, and with some overwintering structure that sometimes go underground. Um, and the other part is, um, for example, like compost piles. If you think of a compost pile where some deceased tissue went in, mm-hmm. if you have layers and layers of uh, plant debris, and then you have some snow cover, and the snow cover is, is almost acting like an insulation to that mm-hmm. compost pile. Mm-hmm. So we're always telling people, you know, every time that you practice good sanitation at the end of the season, you may want to think about either a way to destroy any particular tissue that had plant disease so that you minimize the risk of those pathogens overwintering. Mm-hmm. Because a compost pile can be a very good place for pathogens to overwinter. Um, so if you can destroy, chop the tissue so that it degrades um, better, mix it with other things, compost, things that will make it better to decompose. Um, and ultimately, if you cannot do anything like this, then you may just think about uh, destroying it in any other ways, burying it. Um, sometimes you may think about using other amendments, uh, or if you're into Burmese compost, then that may mm. be a way to get things decomposing fast so mm. that those pathogens are not overwintering there under that precious uh, snow uh, cover and being insulated and protected in a compost pile. Okay. A, a really well, uh, a, a well-run compost operation would be mixing that up to some pretty extreme temperatures. So what, um, would you say that 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 mo- what you said mostly applies to like a static pile, maybe one that doesn't get to the high temps that, okay, okay. Right, yeah, especially if, if you may have a, a pile that may have various degrees of temperatures, it may be really hot in the center, but then you may not have the right temperatures to kill those pathogens in the outer parts. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, you want to be making sure that you're, um, achieving the temperature maybe that may require some um, inputs getting some hot air going um, mixing it in a way that it reaches temperature um, but careful that you're not mixing it um, frequently enough that you're also letting that good temperature um, escape so yeah it's it's a it's a very good question and and uh, there's lots more on on managing that compost to keep it to the point where you're killing a lot of those pathogens. Okay, and you had mentioned about uh, chopping up or trying to degrade crop residue. Um, I talked to Sophia a little bit about this too, and certain insects um, benefit from, uh, well, many insects, especially going into the fall, benefit from crop destruction at a 
you know, early, early, you don't want to leave it forever because then they just persist. You can be, for some bugs, you can get like a whole other generation out of them that you might not have had before. And that leads to a higher population the next year. Sounds like perhaps the same applies to diseases. Am I hearing that right? You can try to reduce the surface area and volume of a plant so that they have less area to less volume to occupy. Um, is that yeah, what absolutely. Yes. And, and chopping it, you know, anything you can do to, uh, speed up that decom like the composition that goes on um, and especially in vegetable systems you want to make sure that you're thinking about um, what your cash crops are and then what are your cover crops and that those cover crops don't become another uh, potential bridge either as living cover crops or as residue um, because that will be another way that the pathogens could stay uh, with those cover crops and in, in be ready for the next year. Right. Yeah. Going back to that alternaria in broccoli, earlier on this podcast, Natalie Hoytel from University of Minnesota interviewed some folks all about alternaria. And one, one of the guests had mentioned the, how attractive radish cover crops have, be, have become in recent years, but that you should be very aware of your crop rotation if you're going to go from broccoli to radish and then or, you know, start the season early with another coal crop. You're, then you, you're basically self-inflicting this like overwintering bridge for alternaria. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and giving the pathogen all the conditions that it needs to survive and, and reproduce. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now we've been talking mostly about field populations here. How about in an environment like a hoop house or a greenhouse? What, what is, is what's different about those places? Like, well, they're, yeah, they're definitely more protected uh, from the elements, uh, from the cold temperatures, and uh, and the environment is going to be more conducive um, for this pathogens to survive. Um, so I think in hoop houses and high tunnels, um, practicing good sanitation, cleanup, it's going to be extremely important, as well as managing. Uh, any weeds uh, inside and also um, close to the walls and borders uh, of the tunnel or hoop house so that um, you're definitely trying to exclude this pathogens uh, from, from the, the site. Okay. Yeah, I guess. So uh, one thing about nutrient management in a hoop house is that you can have salt buildup over time because you're not, uh, unless you take the plastic off every winter, which not many people do, um, you end up with not a lot of like natural precipitation coming down and, and pushing some of those salts lower into the soil column. Um, and what that also does is it excludes snow, but in a way it's like the hoop house is actually one big snowpack. It's like one big insulator over the yeah. soil below. You know what I mean? So if you've, so if, if it's insulating some pathogens that are um, existing in the soil, then yeah, I suppose if you've got a weedy overwintering hoop house there's a lot of bio, there's a lot of plant material to to persist on huh yeah and huh. and uh, and some of us um other fungi are very good at um going into the root systems uh, or remaining associated with the root systems mm -hmm. um and sometimes you know we're maybe very good at, at cutting things um at the at the um soil level um, and we don't really think about pulling roots. Um, but yeah, I think it will be good to think about. I was just thinking 
uh, there's this colitotricum that makes microsclerotia just like we we talked about with botrytis mm-hmm. and and it's very good at staying at the root systems of tomatoes um, and and it could be a source uh, of the pathogen if, if you're not removing most of the root system from from those um, from those okay. vegetables huh okay okay colitotricum that's the pathogen that makes the disease that is commonly called anthracnose. That's like the common name, right? Yes. Yeah. And the one that I'm thinking about uh, is Colitotricum cocodes, and that um, is most commonly found uh, in potatoes uh, and tomatoes, and it's more of a late season um, a problem on on um, on tomatoes. Um, and it, sometimes you may find some of the symptoms on the potatoes as those race little uh, black dots that are, that are the sclerotia. Oh, interesting. Okay. I may have seen that before. Huh. Well, okay. there's, there's other things that will cause that the black uh, race, Dang like rhizochromia. <laughs> you got my hopes up as an entomologist where you see a bug with stripes and you know exactly what it is. It can't be any other thing. That's always been my weak point with diseases. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, they're tough because these pathogens are so small mm-hmm. um, that you really uh, sometimes cannot tell them apart just with the naked eye. You'll need to take a look under the microscope. And sometimes even then, you may not have what you need. You may need to culture them to mm-hmm. allow them to form the structures that, that then will be helpful identifying them. And, and all this is, again, tiny, microscopic. It's, uh, yeah. it's a quite, quite a challenge. I've always appreciated the patience and like the earnestness for the truth that pathologists have, like the, you, you accept no less than, than really accurate diagnoses. You know, there's just, there, cause, cause it can be so many other things and, and you, you're well appreciative of that because you've seen, you know, symptoms that don't look as regular as they might of, you know, something. And it's just, yeah, I'll always really appreciate that. Um, so in a, in a hoop house then, uh, what are, so aside from weed control, you know, trying to make sure that it goes into the winter with, you know, few weeds or with a very well-chosen cover crop, is there anything else that growers should consider going into the winter in a hoop house? Yeah, I think it's always good to think about, um, you know, what problems you may have run into this season, um, what insects may use your hoop house to overwinter uh, mm. or may hang around. Um, so that you, you practice good sanitation uh, and kind of like get into the, you know, okay, I'm trying to control this, this, this pathogen or this insect um, that I really have a hard time. Where could it be hiding, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think sanitation is always um, a good idea uh, to think about, uh, you know, at least at the end of the season, at the beginning of the season before you start uh, to make sure that you're not bringing, you know, you spend so much time and effort getting this perfectly looking uh, seedlings and you don't want the pathogen to be waiting for them in the hoop yeah. house or the field. Yeah. Um, uh, so I know a lot of growers who use landscape fabrics between the rows in, in hoop houses. Is it a good idea to change those out every year? Try not to reuse them. Oh, that's a really good question. They let water mm-hmm. through. They're porous. Um but I mean, tomatoes fall on them. You get seeds squished into them. And um, 
just seems like me. And then because it's a surface, sometimes bugs like to go between the soil and a surface. They just like, like brown marmorated stink bugs and everything else is trying to get in your house right now. They like to like nestle up between stuff. Seems yeah. like in my mind, it might be a good idea not to reuse them for both insect and diseases. Yeah, I would guess it's a very good question. I would say it really depends on what um, problems you may have run into the season. Mm-hmm. It's hard because it's not like a, like a greenhouse bench that you can clean, you know, with serothal or any of the other products. So this may be more complicated. I, I do think that if you had a particular problem in which um, this will make economical sense to remove, I think it, it makes total sense. But but I am thinking um, that I, I don't think it, it's something that I will recommend for everyone and every year. Uh, it may be that you had a perfectly fine low pressure, low disease pressure where you may be able to keep it. Um, or uh, it may be that you had some soilborne pathogens uh, and may need to think about um, changing that and, and implement some other rotation uh, in okay. that hoop house. Yeah, but, um, but it really would depend on, on what, what is, you know, what pathogen or insect you may be trying to prevent in the future. Okay. Uh, I just thought of something about hoop houses that I didn't think of before. I'd like to get your, your take on it. Um, anaerobic soil disinfestation or mm. ASD. Have you heard that term? I have not, not extensively, but yes, I have. Okay. It's a terrible name for an interesting process, but it, it's not something that's easy to do in a field setting. And so the only time I hear this word used is with a hoop house where you've got a much smaller area, high value, um, and you have a lot more control over it. But the, the idea is you need to incorporate a certain level of carbon of any source. So a common source is like molasses, um, though I, I've read of other growers using like wheat hulls or the chaff that comes off of combines, if they can somehow collect that separately, just something that gives bugs something to eat. And then you mix it in and then you saturate it and cover the whole floor in uh, plastic. So you basically seal it up. And then you, the idea is you do this with some time left in the summer so that you get the solar radiation from the sun to heat that surface that's now saturated and full of carbon. And what that does is it like wakes up a bunch of microorganisms that can only exist without oxygen because all the oxygen is pushed out by the water. That's why it's called anaerobic. And then what they do is they eat all that carbon you put there and they eat some of the bad bugs directly or some of the bad bugs, and I'm talking insects, but also diseases here. They just move, if they're, if they're mobile, they move out themselves because they can't handle this low oxygen thing. Um, and then you do that for like two or three weeks and then you pull them off, you pull off the plastic and your soil is essentially sterilized. And I know it's been well-researched in Ohio. seems to me like a really interesting technique that if a grower can plan ahead uh, as if they didn't have a million other things to do in August or September, uh, this is something that would be perfectly done then when you can rely on the sun to, to like do the work for you basically. And I've had this idea that perhaps you could set up your beds even for next year, get the plastic laid and basically concentrate what you're doing in beds instead of like the whole surface where you, you incorporate the carbon, uh, you lay the drip, you lay the plastic and then you irrigate, but you just don't plant anything um, and let that sort of do the job. But, but I don't know. 
It seems like an interesting technique to me with some potential. Yeah, so much at the time. It is, and I, I think uh, there's so much to be learned. Um, you know, the, in the soil, there's not only good, not only bad pathogens. There's a lot of good microorganisms that are there. And so, I um, one of the questions that I always wondered about is, yes, you are um, keeping only those that survive without, you know, that oxygen, but then what are you losing um, mm-hmm. by taking all of those other beneficials that may be there? Um, and I don't know. Um, yeah. but I do have a, a wonderful recommendation of, of a researcher that you may want to interview in this podcast. Who is that? Uh, that's Dr. Anna Teston uh, with USDA ARS. How do you She's Dr. Anna? Teston. All right. I'll have to follow up with in the USDA. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's great, Lena. Thank you for the tip there. Yeah. Coming to a vegetable beat podcast in the near future. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> okay. Well, fantastic. Uh, we went through a lot here uh, in this, in this brief time. And uh, I really appreciate that you were, you were able to make time for this, that you were, you were very busy this fall. Um, and, I'm very appreciative of that. So thank you so much, Lena. No, thank you so much for having me. And, uh, and I, I hope uh, that everyone think about sanitation this fall uh, and uh, try and get rid of all those potential places where the pathogens may be hiding. Great. Thanks, Lena. Okay, that was part two of the Overwintering Pest series. If you missed part one about insects, why don't you go back and listen to that? Sounds like a good use of time. This podcast is put together by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, which is uh, a group of researchers and educators across the Midwest and Great Lakes region. We're sponsored by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center and also by the University of Minnesota, who helps pay for our hosting fee for the podcast. Stay tuned for a few other one-off episodes this winter. I've got two locked and loaded that were recorded from the Great Lakes Expo back in early December. So look forward to that at glveg.net slash listen, and I'll catch you on the flip side.